0: Hey, everybody. It's Mike. Welcome or welcome back to the Revision Church podcast. While you're here, make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download the Revision app, which is actually the best way to get access to new content and share it with friends. You can get the app by texting Revision App to 77977. Thanks for listening today. My hope is that this message will be helpful for you and would inspire you to take the next step on your faith journey. Hey, man, you guys can take a seat. You doing good this morning? That doesn't sound very good. You're looking good even if you're not doing good. Uh, Really excited about today. We have a special guest with us. It's a familiar face probably to many of you. You've even seen her husband, Doug, up here on stage. Preaching before but in addition to being a wife and a mother Jamie Walter is an incredibly gifted communicator And so I'm fired up to have her here sharing with us what God's put on her heart this morning for week two of our promise of peace series so would you guys put your hands together and give Jamie a warm revision welcome to the stage
1: so about four or five years ago my family took a trip to Galena Illinois And if you've ever been to Galena, you know that there's an alpine slide. And there's two tracks carved in the hillside where each track has a little cart you can sit down in, and there's a lever that you can push it forward to go faster, pull it back to brake. And at the end, uh, there's a ski lift that you can ride back up. So I don't think you're actually supposed to race, even though there's two tracks. However, if you're going to put two tracks and the attendant is going to start you at the same time and put the two most competitive people in your family, what are you going to do? So my son and I each sat down in a cart and we're told we could go. So we start down the hillside, and it wasn't long before I realized he's racing me, and I'm not going to let him win. Now, as I've gotten older, I've developed this really weird fear of heights. However, my competitive nature is still strong, and it outweighed my fear of heights. So I'm screaming most of the way down, but I am flying as fast as I can, and Luke and I keep exchanging looks, and he's laughing, and he's going, and we get close to the end, and I start thinking, I might win this thing. But to my dismay, up ahead, I see an older lady who has gone before me who is not competitive, and she has pulled her brake and was just tooling along down the hillside. So there's no way that she's going to finish before I am going to finish. And my son realizes this, and he pumps his fists and lets out a whoop and keeps on going. So I'm like, he's going to win. So I'm watching this. All this is happening simultaneously as Luke is about ready to end and he's going to win. The lady, too, is coming to the end. And I see Luke, at that moment, look back to see where I'm at, not realizing how close he actually is to the end. And he was going full speed, and at the end there was a tire. And he went and hit that tire, flew over the top. And I'm watching all of this happen in horror. So I'm trying to hurry up, get to the end. The lady's just starting to exit. I then start to get out to go see if my son's okay, But he gets up, pops up, he's fine. And at that same time, I see the ski lift attendant running over yelling, hey, if I catch you doing that again, I'm going to cut that wristband. So the lady looks at me with this look of disgust, and kind of as if to say, who is that kid and where are his parents? So I made a decision in that moment. And I decided just to shrug my shoulders and act like, (laughs) I don't know where his parents are, but he does need a little supervision. And I took off toward the ski lift and hopped on. So, my husband likes to say this story is a good example of a bad example. And I was indeed a bad parent that day. Now, I simply tell you this story to show you a contrast of our great God who sees us in the messes we make or sometimes the messes that are made for us. He sees us and he never leaves us and he never forsakes us. So with that in mind, today we're going to talk about chapter 16 in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. But before you turn there, I want to give you a little background about our story and about the three people that we're going to encounter in our story. So they're Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar. Now, Abraham and Sarah, um, in the passage I'm going to read today and, and before, in the background I'm going to tell you, God had not yet changed their names to Abraham and Sarah. They're Abraham and Sarai, however, for just the sake of ease, I'm going to call them Abraham and Sarah throughout this message so god um quite a few years before we're going to begin today god had called abraham out of his country and he was telling him that he was going to give him a land he was going to promise him land and that if he would just leave his life of comfort and ease and at the time scholars say that he was probably living in a fairly modernized for the time society so he had a comfortable life He probably had a dwelling a house and chose to live now in the wilderness in tents which we're going to see that theme all through scripture and we know that uh, the Israelites um, later hundreds of years later God's going to call them out of Egypt and they will wander in the desert for years going toward the promised land and I think we can say that even today that we are foreigners and strangers in this land moving toward a new heavens, new earth, toward our promised land. So there's this theme throughout all of history. So Abraham believed God and he left. He took his wife, he took relatives, he took livestock and possessions and took off. Even though Abraham and Sarah both Are called um, father and mother of faith they have great faith they doubted just like we doubt sometimes and there was famine in the land at one time and so they decided to pivot and go to the land of Egypt so that they could be fed and cared for so during this time in Egypt Abraham begins to fear even more he knows his wife has supernatural beauty and she must have supernatural beauty because he feared that Um, Pharaoh would kill him in order to possess his wife Sarah so he asked Sarah to lie and it was really a half-truth but we know a half-truth is still a lie so Sarah lies and says to Pharaoh I am Abraham's sister so he doesn't kill Abraham but he does take Sarah and he's planning to make her his wife now God is having none of this God is a God who keeps his promises and we're gonna we know that God has promised a child to them, has promised Isaac, even though Sarah has not yet had any children yet. And God does not want f- Sarah to be the wife of Pharaoh and have children through him, because God keeps His promises. So he sends plagues to Pharaoh and his household, and Pharaoh realizes why this is happening. So he gives Sarah back to Abraham. And sends them away and gives them gifts he gives them food and animals and even people as slaves to take with them from the land of Egypt now I read there's some biblical scholars that think that Hagar may have been a special gift to Sarah at this time from Pharaoh because he thought she was so beautiful he looked at her as even a god so this is where Hagar probably enters even though we don't see it at that time yet in Scripture so Sarah takes Hagar and she was possibly even a daughter of Pharaoh he had several wives several concubines and he was giving her a treasured possession so Hagar may have grown up in a lot of ease and here she was going out to live a nomad's life, living in tents and wandering in the wilderness. So her life changed greatly. I'm guessing that over the years, Sarah, who was unable to have children, may have began looking at Hagar as almost like a daughter and taking care of her as Hagar served her. I'm sure Abraham and Sarah talked about the real God and taught her the things of God, and Hagar was always hearing these things in the household of Abraham and Sarah. So, with that in mind, this intimate relationship that I'm guessing Sarah and Hagar probably had, I want to start reading in our text. We are going to be in the 16th chapter of the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, and I'm going to start reading with verse 1. Abraham's wife Sarah had not born any children for him, but she owned an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Sarah said to Abraham, since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave. Perhaps through her I can build a family. And Abraham agreed to what Sarah said. So Abraham's wife Sarah took Hagar, her Egyptian slave, and gave her to her husband Abraham as a wife for him. This happened after Abraham had lived in the land of Canaan 10 years. He slept with Hagar and she became pregnant. When she saw that she was pregnant, Her mistress became contemptible to her. So backing up just a little bit, Abraham had heard the voice of God since he had left Egypt again speak to him, and he had told him, he had promised him, look toward heaven see the stars see if you can number them so shall your offspring be and abraham believed that and god credited it to him as righteousness but yet again we see abraham doubts and fears sarah's doubting and fearing and i think if we're honest we're the same kind of people with doubts and fears so they do something that is not in god's plan and they use hagar for their own purposes trying to force the promise of god now through the course of this message i'm going to give you four describing words for hagar and i think here we see our first one one hagar is a woman who finds herself used she is being used by abraham used by sarah in order to meet their own needs and to bring forth their own purposes Now, I remember as a kid in a Sunday school class, and even as I got older, hearing or reading things about Hagar that gave her a bad rap and made her look as if she was being haughty and holding this against Sarah. But I think this version, the Christian Standard Bible, translates this the best when it says that when Hagar became pregnant, her mistress became contemptible to her. And I looked that up and what that really means is that someone you hold in high regard, high esteem, you have high respect for, has done something that they have fallen from that esteem and you have completely lost respect for them. So, and I think maybe rightfully so, that Sarah, this mother figure, has lost respect in Hagar's eyes when she finds herself in this position. So Hagar finds herself as a woman who's used. So let's continue in verse five. Then Sarah said to Abraham, you are responsible for my suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and when she saw that she was pregnant, I became contemptible to her. May the Lord judge between me and you. Abraham replied to Sarah, here, your slave is in your power. Do whatever you want with her. Then Sarah mistreated her so much that she ran away from her. Okay, there's a few things to note here. One, we can see that Abraham and Sarah, the two people who know the tr- knew the true God, who made people in his own image and gave dignity to all people are not even dignifying Hagar with her name. They're saying, my slave, your slave. And I think we all know when we use somebody, it's hard to dignify them, even with their name. So they definitely are showing that they're using Hagar for their own devices. I think we also see some echoes from the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve began the blame game of why they ate the fruit in the garden. So I think that this is a theme, too, all through scripture and why we need a promised child that will come in a manger as a Messiah to save his people from their sins. So they begin to blame each other. And then the last line, I think, gives us the clue to our next two describing words for Hagar. It says, then Sarah mistreated her so much So I think Hagar finds herself as a woman who's abused. She's been used and she's been abused. And it's said that she was mistreated so much by Sarah that she ran away from her. So here's our third word, she feels refused. She's a woman who's been used and abused and now feels refused. So let's see what happens happens to Hagar. In verse 7, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. He said, Hagar, slave of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? She replied, I'm running away from my mistress Sarah. So, first, I want to note that whenever we see the phrase, the angel of the Lord, in the old testament a lot of commentaries say that that is actually a visit by the pre-incarnate christ and i was really excited to find this because i thought this really is a christmas message she's being visited by pre-incarnate king jesus now whatever is true whether this really is the second person of the trinity or it's simply an angel speaking the words of god we know for sure it is god's voice that is speaking to her because we're going to see in a little bit that hagar is going to name god so god also notice that he speaks her name he dignifies her hagar he says he calls her by name but yet he doesn't sugarcoat her circumstances he's not trying to say oh don't care about what's going on he's does say slave of sarah he knows her circumstances he knows what she's going through he calls her hagar slave of sarah and then he asks her a question where have you come from and where are you going now whenever god asks a question i find it a little interesting because surely he knows the answer right i think again there's echoes of the garden of eden god asking them a question and we know he knows the answer I was reading a book once, and the author really helped me see something here. He said, when God asks a question, he is not staging an interrogation. Now, I don't know if any of you out there are true crime podcast fans, but I'm a big true crime podcast fan. My family knows this about me. I love to listen to true crime podcasts when I go for walks. So I have listened to a lot of interrogations. Now in an interrogation, you know it's a detective that is using whatever means possible to get the information that he doesn't have and that he wants from this person or this suspect so that he can trap them and eventually put them in prison versus what God is actually doing and it's that he's staging an intervention. Now I don't know if any of you have ever been a part of an intervention or heard of them or seen them but the person asking the question to the person they're trying to get the answers from is asking them they already know the answers but they're asking the person in order to get that person to see something about themselves so they can be set free. So I think that helps us, even today sometimes I feel like God asks questions of us and we can be assured that he wants us to be free. So God's question, you see that it has elements of the past, where have you come from? Elements of the future, where are you going? But notice Hagar's answer. She doesn't answer with either, she answers with the present. She replied, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarah. So I think here's our fourth and final describing words for the situation that Hagar finds herself in. She is confused. So she's a woman who's been used, abused, refused, and now she's confused. So she answers with the present, and I think it's because she is so clouded with what's happening now, she's in so much despair that she can't remember where she's been and she can't look forward to where she's going. She can only see the present mess in front of her. Now I know as Christian people that we are often told, don't dwell on the past, don't worry about the future, and that is certainly true. We shouldn't do those things, yet there are times sometimes when god says to remember and that word does show up all over scripture in fact whenever i see the word remember when i'm reading the bible i take my pencil and put an r over it because i want to know what is god telling his people and what is he telling me to remember so god wants us to remember what he's done for us we know as new testament people that god has sent his son as a baby in a manger to be born and live a perfect life and die a horrible death and rise again to conquer death and to save us from our sins. We know that. We can remember that. And we also know that we are people with a future and a hope, that we are looking toward a true promised land, a promised land that will not disappoint us, That he will, and he will make all things new. So we ought to sometimes look forward with anticipation and hope. So let's continue on and see what else the angel of the Lord says to Hagar in verse nine. The angel of the Lord said to her, go back to your mistress and submit to her authority. Okay, I wanna stop just with that verse because this verse always bothers me. Why would God tell someone to go back to the people who were abusing her We saw right in scripture, Sarah mistreated her so much that she had to run away. So, I think there's some easy answers here to start off with, and one is just that it would be the safest place possible for Hagar. She's in the wilderness, it's dangerous for her alone, there's wild animals, there could be caravans of thieves and robbers. Um, Even if she made her way back to Egypt, which is probably where she was going, she was a single woman pregnant by a Hebrew man. I don't think things would have gone well for her. I think the very safest place for Hagar was back in the household of Abraham and Sarah. We also don't see a pattern of abuse that they've had. I'm not making any excuses for what they've done. I am saying that I think Hagar and Sarah were both broken, fragile, doubting women and who made very poor decisions and abraham also shows his doubts here so i think that that is some of it i think that these truly are people abraham and sarah who do love god and know that he has created humans in his image and gives all humans dignity also i think we can remember that when scripture says something and i know you've heard this before but it's not always prescriptive. It's not giving us a prescription for what we ought to do. It's just descriptive of what is happening. So God tells her to go back. But I still continue to contemplate this. And I think as I read on and as we read on, we're going to see an even greater reason why Sarah told her or why I'm sorry, the angel told her to go back to Sarah. So in verse 10, let's read what God says. The angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your offspring, and they will be too many to count. So God has a vision for all people in all nations, God has a heart for all people. God, who was creating this child within Hagar, had a vision for his future and his hope, and many of these people would be brought in to the kingdom of God through the pre-incarnate Christ who was coming, the coming Messiah, grafted in through the blood of Jesus. We know in Revelations that it says that God that someday God will bring people from every tongue tribe and nation to sit around the throne and worship King Jesus so there is a great vision and a great plan and God did not want Hagar just to disappear off into Egyptian history he wanted her to be within the people of God because he had a future and a hope we know for her and we know for some of the lineage that she is carrying on so I I, I need to stop and just say, God is never calling us to run into suffering. God is never calling us to run into abuse and to embrace that. He is calling us out of it. So if you find yourself in that position, you seek whatever help necessary to get out and don't go back. God is not telling you to go back into abuse. So with that in mind, let's continue in verse 11 and see what else God says to Hagar, The angel of the Lord said to her, You have conceived and you will have a son. You will name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your cry of affliction. This man will be like a wild donkey. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. He will settle near all his relatives. Okay, so that's a little bit of a mixed bag, I admit, of a blessing. Now, 16 years ago when I was pregnant with my son Luke, if someone would have approached me and said, I have a blessing for you. This son that you're carrying, he's gonna be a wild donkey of a man. <laughs> Not sure I would have looked upon that very favorably. However, there's something different going on here. And the original language that, this, that the Bible was written in, the Old Testament, the word for wild donkey was a different name for that animal than the word for a domesticated donkey. So everyone in that culture knew that a wild donkey was almost impossible to capture, and even if you could, it was impossible to domesticate this animal. People in that time needed to raise donkeys from birth in captivity so they could use them for their own purposes. Notice that language. But Ishmael would not be that. He would be a wild donkey, and Hagar would have heard this and been encouraged she would have felt so seen because she would have realized my son will be free this was an egyptian slave woman who is hearing language about her child that he is going to be free now all this language too is reminiscent of the same language that god spoke to abraham and sarah or hagar would have heard this through Sarah, or maybe heard it herself, that God was gonna multiply his people. And so she would have felt so seen and so known. And I do think that this is the moment that God opened the eyes of her heart and changed her heart of stone to a heart of flesh. And we can see this in the next verse. So let's look at verse 13. So she named the Lord who spoke to her you are El Roy, for she said, In this place have I actually seen the one who sees me? Now, I don't think that this was a question like, How? and I'm wondering, have I seen the one who sees me? I think she's asking in such a way. It's kind of in an astonishment and kind of in hope that have I, little old me, Hagar, I'm not Abraham, I'm not Sarah. I know they have a God who loves them. But now I have actually seen the one who sees me so the name she gives him El Roy is not just translated the God who sees it is a very personal name and it's literally translated the God who sees me so she gives him a personal name and I don't think that it is any light thing that the first person who gets to name God Is what we would call a Gentile woman somebody outside of the Israelite the lineage the family of God she is an Israelite slave woman who is the first person who gets to give God a name if that's not encouraging for all of us I don't know what is and she's a woman that we know has been used and abused and refused and confused and yet God is giving her the opportunity to see him and to name him I think, too, it's worthy of note that when God calls us by name, as he called Hagar, then we can see him and call him by name. So I think that this woman, Hagar, is kind of like some of us whether you felt one or more or all four of these things at one time in your life. I know all of us at some time have felt one of these things used or abused. We felt refused by someone, or we felt very confused in life. But we know that the coming Messiah that came, Jesus, became our great high priest who could sympathize with all our weaknesses. We know that Jesus himself was used He was used by the people for their own purposes. Even his disciples used him in the way that they thought he was coming in order to reign on this earth, to reign against the Romans, to conquer them and rule in that time, in that place. We know people today still use the name of Jesus for their own purposes. And we know Jesus was abused by the Roman soldiers. He was whipped and he was beaten, he was spit on, He was mocked, we know Jesus was refused. He was refused, of course, by the priests and the scribes and the Pharisees of the time, but he was also refused by his own disciples. Thomas doubted him, we know Peter denied him and Judas betrayed him. He was refused by the people. When Pilate gave them the opportunity to release one prisoner and they could have released Jesus, instead they cried out, we want Barabbas he was definitely refused. And though God incarnate in the body of a man, I'm not sure we can say that he was exactly confused, but we do know he sweat blood in the garden and he cried out, Father, if you can take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. So I think that he can understand us. So Jesus does see us, he sees us in, as I said, the messes we've created ourselves, the messes that have been done to us, no faults of our own. But yet, if that's where he stopped, like the words of Paul in the New Testament, we of all people would be most to be pitied, he doesn't just understand us, he changes us. He changes our heart, he brings us from death to life if we believe in him. He is the God who comes to make all things new. So instead of being used, we are people who are renewed. In 2 Corinthians 5:17 it says we are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And we, instead of being a people who are abused, we are cherished by God. We all know the famous verse, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And instead of being refused, we have been accepted. John also says in his first letter, In chapter 3 see how great the love the father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God and that is what we are we have been accepted into the family of God adopted as his sons and daughters we are no longer slaves we are daughters and sons and instead of being being people who are confused we are enlightened God has called us out of darkness Peter says into his wonderful light so that we can be a people as it says in Hebrews that are sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see so that we can remember what God has done and we can look forward to something that we do not yet possess but it is a promise and God is a good father who never leaves us never forsakes us and keeps his promises So this Christmas, I want us to remember that. I want us to remember the coming Messiah that came to us, that if we believe in him, if we put our hope in him, we can remember that he died on the cross for our sins to conquer sin and death and that he rose again and that we can have new life in him. We can be this new creation. And so we can fix our eyes on the Prince of Peace who sees you, he doesn't always, he sees your circumstances and he doesn't always change those this side of heaven. Not always, but he always changes you on the inside if you believe. He sees you, he knows you, he doesn't believe you and he says to you, behold, I am making all things new. So, would you guys pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you are a God that sees and not just sees what's going on all around us, but you see me. You see each of us, what's going on inside of us, and you offer us new hope and new life if we put our hope and trust in you, and you change us and you make us new. So give us hope this Christmas season. Sometimes Christmas is hard for some of us. Give us hope and that we can remember That you are the God who says, behold, I'm coming to make all things new. You call us by name so that we can call you by name, Elroy, the God who sees me. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.